Hello everybody, and welcome to the Smartass Historian. I am as always the Great White Snark, Scotty J, and at this point I would be introducing my co-host, the Reverend Jeff, but because of the pandemic and everything that has changed since March of last year, Jeff and I have not been able to record together in the same room or even by way of the internet, and I know that's affected how I've done things because... I'm so used to working with a partner that I got scared and I didn't record because I was I wanted to have that feedback from a partner. But for the foreseeable future, and since they're talking that we're interrupting or coming into a second wave of this pandemic, um, I'm solo. I'll be doing the show solo, so... Uh, there's going to be different ways on how I'm going to present the shows. And while I'm working on this, I'm working on new scripts. Uh, I've got a giant stack of books sitting next to me that I, I'm going to read and turn into different episodes. And I might go back to some other episodes I've done over the years and kind of look at them with new eyes and redo them. But as I'm also working on scripts for this show and for the other show, Killers, Cults, and Nutjobs... I'm also working on scripts for Through the Looking Glass, which is going to look at serial killers and conspiracy theories and stuff like that. And a new Civil War podcast I've been working on for years, and I've finally gotten around to figuring out the direction it's wanted to, wanted to go. It's going to be called um, Unreconstructed, a podcast on the lost cause and Civil War memory. So stay tuned, uh, I'll, let, I'll update you on when those are coming out, but for the time being, you have me with a smart-ass historian, and now, let's get into today's show. Step right up, ladies and gentlemen, for just one simple little you can come into the great mysterious great museum of the unknown and see and hear things that have never been never been seen by human eyes or human ears ah you you look like the perfect person to come in thank you sir thank you now come on in and today we show you the greatest showman on earth. Now here behind the first curtain we see our lovely subject. His name is P.T. Barnum. Now Barnum, he was born in Bethel, Connecticut, the son of an innkeeper, tailor and storekeeper Philo Barnum, and Philo's second wife Irene Taylor. Now, just to give you a little insight on how young Phineas is, Phineas was the third great-grandson of Thomas Barnum, the English immigrant ancestor of the Barnum family in North America. Now, his maternal grandfather, Phineas Taylor, was a Whig, a legislature, landowner, justice of the peace, and lottery schemer. And he had a great influence on his favorite grandson, which we will see as young Barnum gets older. Now, Barnum was adept at arithmetic, but he hated physical work, as most children do. Now, he started as a storekeeper, 
and he learned haggling and using deception to make a sale. He was involved in the first lottery mania in the United States, and at the age of 19, he married sweet little Charity Hallett. Now, if you follow me, ladies and gentlemen, we'll head over to the next display. The young husband had several businesses. He had a general store, a book auctioning trade, real estate speculation, and a statewide lottery network. Now, he became active in local politics and advocated against blue laws promulgated by Calvinists who sought to restrict gambling and travel. Barnum started a weekly paper in 1829, which was named the Herald of Freedom, in Danbury, Connecticut. His editorials against church elders led to libel suits and a prosecution which resulted in imprisonment for two months. But he became a champion of the liberal movement upon his release. In 1834, when lotteries were banned in Connecticut, cutting off his main income, Barnum sold the store and moved to New York City. The city where dreams are made. Now, in 1835, he began a showman, or he began as a showman, with his purchase and exhibition of a blind, almost completely paralyzed slave woman named Joyce Heth, who Barnum claimed to have been George Washington's nurse and to be over 160 years old. Well, in reality, Joyce died in 1836, and she was no more than 80 years old. Now, after a year of mix, mis, sorry, ladies and gentlemen, mixed success with his first variety troupe called Barnum's Grand Scientific and Musical Theater, followed by the Panic of 1837 and three years of difficult circumstances, he purchased Scrudder's American Museum at the corner of Broadway and Ann Street in New York City in 1841. Now, he improved the attraction, renamed Barnum's American Museum, upgrading the building and adding exhibits, and it became a popular showplace. Now he added a lighthouse lamp which attracted attention up and down Broadway and flags along the roof's edge that attracted attention in daytime. Now from between the upper windows, giant paintings of animals drew stares from pedestrians. The roof was transformed into a strolling garden with a view of the city where he launched hot air balloon rides daily. Now, changing a series of live acts and curiosities, including albinos, giants, midgets, fat boys, jugglers, magicians, exotic women, detailed models of cities and famous battles, and eventually a menagerie of animals were added to the exhibit of stuffed animals. Now, if you'll step with me over here, we'll view the next display. In 1842, Barnum introduced his first major hoax, a creature with the head of a monkey and the tail of a fish known as the Fiji Mermaid. Now, he leased the mermaid from fellow museum owner Moses Kimball in Boston. Now, Kimball became his friend, confidant, and collaborator. Now, Barnum described his hoaxes and justified his act of perpetrating them by saying that they were advertisements to draw attention to the museum. I don't believe in duping the public, but I believe in first attracting and then pleasing them. Later, he crusaded against fraudsters. Now Barnum followed that with the exhibition of Charles Stratton, the dwarf, the General Tom Thumb, 
the smallest person that ever walked alone, who was then 40 years of age, but Barnum figged the numbers a little bit and made him 11. Now, with heavy coaching and natural talent, the boy was taught to imitate people from Hercules to Napoleon. Now, by the age of five, he was drinking wine and by seven, smoking cigars for the public's amusement. Because, let's face it, folks, a small person drinking and smoking will bring in anybody. I'd pay a quarter to see that myself. And now, if you'll step over here to the next exhibit. In the year 1843, Barnum hired the traditional Native American dancer Fuhumni, the first of many Native Americans he presented. Now, during 1844 and 45, Barnum toured with Tom Thumb in Europe and met Queen Victoria, who was amused and saddened by the little man, and the event was a publicity coup. It opened the door to visitors from royalty across Europe, including the Tsar of Russia, and led him to acquire dozens of attractions, including automatons and other mechanical marvels. He was almost able to buy the birth home of William Shakespeare. Barnum spent about three years abroad with Tom Thumb. Now, he went on a spending spree buying other museums, including Peel's Museum in Philadelphia, the nation's first major museum. By late 1846, Barnum's museum was drawing 400,000 visitors a year. Now, a risky decision from Barnum established him as a legitimate impresario. During his Tom Thumb tour of England, Barnum had become aware of the popularity of Jenny Lind, the Swedish Nightingale. Lind's career was at its height in Europe. She was unpretentious, shy, and devout, and possessed a crystal-clear soprano voice projected a wistful quality and earnestness that the audience found touching. Uh. Now, Barnum had never heard her and conceded to bring and conceded to be an unmusical himself. Well, he approached her to sing in America at $1,000 a night for 150 nights, all expenses paid by him. Well, he knew the risk was great, noting, The public is a very dangerous animal, and although good knowledge of human nature will generally lead a caretaker of amusement to hit the people right, they are fickle and oftentimes perverse. But... Barnum was confident that her reputation for morality and philanthropy could be turned to good use in his publicity. Now, if you'll step over to your right, I mean to your left, ladies and gentlemen, to your left. Well, Lynn demanded the fee and advanced. He agreed, and she accepted the offer, which would permit her to raise a huge fund for charities, principally endowing schools for poor children in Sweden. Now, to raise the fee... Phineas borrowed heavily on his mansion and his museum. Still slightly short, he persuaded a Philadelphia minister, who thought that Lind would be a good influence on American morals, or American morals, to lend him the final five grand. The contract also gave Lind the option of withdrawing from the tour after 60 or 100 contracts, paying Barnum 25 grand if she did so. Now, Lynn and her small company sailed to America in September of 1850. Now, as a result of his months of preparation, Lynn was a celebrity even before she arrived in the U.S. 
and close to 40,000 greeted her at the docks and another 20 at her hotel. And the press was in attendance, because they are. And Jenny Lynn mm-hmm. items were available. Now, when she realized how much money Barnum stood to make from this tour, she insisted on a new agreement, which she signed on September 3rd, 1850. This gave her the original fee plus the remainder of each concert's profits after Barnum took his $5,500 management cut was paid. Now, she was determined to accumulate as much money as possible for her charities. The tour began at the Castle Garden on September 11, 1850, and it was a major success, which recruited which Barnum recouped four times his investment. Now, Washington Irving proclaimed she is enough to counterbalance of herself all the evil that the world is threatened with by the great convention of women. So God save Jenny Lynn. Tickets for some of her concerts were in such demand that Barnum sold them by auction. The enthusiasm of the public was so strong that the American press coined the term Lind Mania, which we will see again in the future for a certain mop-top group from England. Now, the blatant commercialism of Barnum's ticket auctions distressed Lynn, and for her second concert and thereafter, she persuaded him to make a substantial number of tickets available at reduced prices. You'll step over to your left. On the tour! Barnum's publicity always preceded Lynn's arrival and whipped up enthusiasm. Now, she didn't know it, but P.T. Barnum had 26 journalists on his payroll. After New York, the company toured the east coast of America with continued success and later took in Cuba and the southern states of the U.S. By early 1851, she'd become uncomfortable with Barnum's relentless marketing of the tour, and she invoked her contractual right to sever her ties with him. Well, they parted amicably, and she continued to tour for nearly a year under her own management. Now, Jenny, now Miss Lind, gave 93 concerts in America for Barnum, earning her about $350,000. Barnum made at least $500,000. Now, using profits from her tour, Barnum, next, his next challenge was to change public attitude about the theater. Widely seen as dens of evil, he wanted to position them as palaces of edification and delight, and as respectable middle-class entertainment. Well, he built the city's largest and most modern theater, naming it the Moral Lecture Room. He hoped this would avoid seedy connotations and attract a family crowd, and win the approval of the Moral Crusaders of New York City. He started the nation's first theatrical matinees to encourage families and to lessen the fear of crime. Now, he opened with The Drunkard, a thinly disguised temperance lecture. Well, he did become a teetotaler after returning from Europe. Now, he followed that with melodramas, farces, historical plays put on by highly regarded actors. He, watched, he watered down Shakespearean plays and others such as Uncle Tom's Cabin, to make them family entertainment. Now he organized flower shows, beauty contests, dog shows, poultry contests, but the most popular were the baby contests. 
which included the fattest baby, the most handsome twin, handsomest twins, stuff like that. In 1853, he started a pictorial weekly newspaper, the Illustrated News, and a year later completed his autobiography, which went through many revisions, sold more than one million copies. Now Mark Twain, he loved it. But the British examiner thought it trashy and offensive, and inspired nothing but sensations of disgust and sincere pity for the wretched man who compiled it. Now, if you look over to your left, in the early 1850s, he began investing to develop East Bridgeport, Connecticut. He made substantial loans to the Jerome Clock Company to get it to move to his new industrial area. But by 1856, the company went bankrupt, taking Barnum's wealth with it. Now, this started four years of litigation and public humiliation. Ralph Waldo Emerson proclaimed that Barnum's downfall showed the gods visible again, and other critics celebrated Barnum's moral comeuppance. But his friends supported him, and Tom Thumb, who was now touring on his own, offered his services and they undertook another European tour. Barnum also started a lecture tour, most likely as a temperance speaker. By 1860, he emerged from debt and built a mansion, Lindencroft, because his house, Iranistan, had burnt down in 1857 and he resumed ownership of his museum. Now, despite critics who predicted that he could not revive the magic, he went on a great he went on to greater success. He created America's first aquarium and expanded the wax figure department. His seven great salons demonstrated the seven wonders of the world. He created a rogues gallery. The collections expanded to four buildings and he published a guidebook to the museum, which claimed 850,000 curiosities. To your left. Now, late in 1860, the Siamese twins... Chang and Ng came out of retirement. Now, Chang and Ng needed some money because they fathered a lot of children and would like to send them to college. Now, the twins had a touring career on their own and went to live on a North Carolina plantation with their families and slaves under the name of Bunker. They appeared at Barnum's Museum for six weeks. Also in 1860, Barnum introduced the man-monkey William Henry Johnson, a microcephalic black dwarf who spoke a mysterious language created by Barnum. In 1862, he discovered the giantess Anna Swan and Commodore Nutt, a new Tom Thumb, with whom Barnum visited President Abraham Lincoln at the White House. Now, During the Civil War, Barnum's museum drew large audiences seeking a diversion from the conflict. He added pro-unionist exhibits, lectures, and dramas, and he demonstrated commitment to the cause. For example, in 1864, Barnum hired Pauline Cushman, an actress who had served as a spy for the Union, to lecture about her thrilling adventures behind Confederate lines. Barnum's unionist sympathies incited a Confederate arsonist to start a fire in 1864. On July 13, 1865, the American Museum burned to the ground from a fire of unknown origin. Barnum re-established the museum at another location in New York City, but this too was destroyed by a fire in March of 68. This time, the loss was too great 
and Barnum retired from the mu- from the museum business. Well, Barnum did not enter the circus business until he was 60 years old. In Delvin, Wisconsin, in 1870, with William Cameron Coop, he established the P.T. Barnum's Grand Traveling Museum, Menagerie, Caravan, and Hippodrome. A traveling circus museum, uh, sorry, a traveling circus, menagerie, and museum of freaks. It went through various names, P.T. Barnum's Traveling World's Fair, the Great Roman Hippodrome, and the Greatest Show on Earth. And after a merger in 1881 with James Bailey and James L. Hutchinson, P.T. Barnum's Greatest Show on Earth and the Great London Circus, Sanger's Royal British Menagerie, and the Grand International Allied Shows United was created, but it was soon shortened to Barnum and Bailey's. See where I'm going here, folks? This entertainment phenomenon was the first circus to display three rings, which made it the largest circus the world had ever seen. The show's first primary attraction was Jumbo, an African elephant he purchased in 1882 from the London Zoo. The Barnum and Bailey still contained similar acts as to his traveling menagerie, acrobats, freak shows, and the world-famous General Tom Thumb. Now, despite more fires, train disasters, and other setbacks, Barnum plowed ahead, aided by circus professionals who ran the daily operations. Well, he and Bailey split up again in 1885, but came back together in 1888 with the Barnum and Bailey Greatest Show on Earth, later named Barnum and Bailey Circus, which toured the world. Now, Barnum became known as the Shakespeare of advertising due to his innovative and impressive ideas. He knew how to draw patrons in by giving them a glimpse of something that they had never seen before. Now, he was, at times, accused of being deceptive and promoting false advertising. He was one of the very first circus owners to move his circus by train. And he was probably the very first to buy his own train. His friend, W.C. Coop, helped him get railroad cars to make his tour traveling easier. Given the lack of paved highways in America, this turned out to be a shrewd business move that vastly enlarged his geographical reach. In this new field, Barnum learned more on the advice, of, or he leaned more on Coop's advice, and he and Bailey and other business partners, most of whom were young enough to be his sons. Now, let me step here to the left again, folks. Barnum wrote several books, including The Life of P.T. Barnum in 1854, The Humbugs of the World in 1865, Struggles and Triumphs in 69, and The Art of Money Getting in 1880. One of his more successful methods of self-promotion was mass publication of his autobiography. Barnum eventually gave up his copyright to allow other printers to sell inexpensive editions. At the end of the 19th century, the number of copies printed was second only to the New Testament in North America. Now, Barnum is often referred to as the Prince of Humbugs. Barnum saw nothing wrong in entertaining or vendors using hype, or, as the term humbug became known, in promotional material as long as the public was getting value for the money. However, he was contemptuous of those who made money through fraudulent deceptions, especially the spiritualist mediums popular in his day, testifying against noted spirit photographer William H. Mumler 
in his trial for fraud. Free figuring illusionist Harry Houdini and James Randi, Barnum exposed the tricks of the trade used by mediums to cheat the bereaved. In the humbugs of the world, he offered $500 to any medium who could prove power to communicate with the dead. Barnum was significantly involved in politics, focusing on race, slavery, and sectionalism in the years leading up to the Civil War. Now, he had some of his first success as an impresario through his slave, Joyce Heth. Around 1850, he was involved in a hoax about a weed that would turn black people white. Barnum was a producer and promoter of blackface ministry. Barnum's minstrel shows often used double-edged humor. While replete with black stereotypes, Barnum's shows satirized as in a stump speech in which black phrenologists, like all minstrel performers, a white man in blackface, made a dialect speech parroting lectures given at the time to prove the superiority of the white race. Now, for those of you who may be a little sensitive to this, I apologize. When you see, then, that clever man and dim rascal means the same in Dutch when they both white, but when one white and one other black, that's a gray horse of another color. Now, a promotion of minstrel shows led to a sponsorship in 1853 of H.J. Con Conway's politically watered-down stage version of Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. The play at Barnum's American Museum gave the story a happy ending, with Tom and other slaves freed. This success led to a play based on Stowe's, Stowe's Dread, a tale of the Great Dismal Swamp. His opposition to the Kansas-Nebraska Act act which supported slavery of 1854 led him to leave the Democratic Party and to become a member of the new anti-slavery Republican Party. He had evolved from a man of common stereotypes of the 1840s to a leader for emancipation by the Civil War. Now, while he claimed politics were always distasteful to me, he was elected to the Connecticut legislature in 1865 as a Republican representative for Fairfield and served four terms. In a debate over slavery and African-American suffrage with the ratification of the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, Barnum spoke before the legislator and said, A human soul that God has created and Christ died for is not to be trifled with. It may tenant the boy of a Chinaman, a Turk, an Arab, or a Hottentot. It is still an immortal spirit. Now, he was notably the legislative sponsor of a law enacted by the Connecticut General Assembly in 1879 that prohibited the use of any drug, medicinal article, or instrument for the purpose of preventing con conception that remained in effect in, the Connecticut, in Connecticut until it was overturned in 1965 by the U.S. Supreme Court case Griswold v. Connecticut. Now... Barnum ran for the United States Congress in 1867, lost to his third cousin, William Henry Barnum. In 1875, as a major of Bridgeport, Connecticut, he worked to improve the water supply, bring gaslighting to the streets, and enforce liquor and prostitution laws. He was instrumental in starting the Bridgeport Hospital, founded in 1878, and was the, its first president. Now, he enjoyed what, publi what publicity dubbed Profitable philanthropy. In his own words, 
I have no desire to be considered much of a philanthropist. If by improving and beautifying our city, Bridgeport, Connecticut, and adding to the pleasure and prosperity of my neighbors, I can do so at a profit, the incentive to good works will be twice as strong as if it were otherwise. Now, in line with this philosophy was his pursuit of, of American museums and spectacles. Less known are his significant contributions to Tufts University. Barnum was appointed to the Board of Trustees prior to the founding and made several significant contributions to the fledgling institution. The most noteworthy examples of this was his gift in 1883 of $50,000 to establish a museum and hall for the Department of Natural History, which today houses the Department of Biology. Because of the relationship between Barnum and Tufts, Jumbo the Elephant became the school's mascot and the Tufts students are known as Jumbos. Well, as you step here to the last display, ladies and gentlemen, it is with sadness that I say that Barnum suffered a stroke in 1890 during a performance and died on April 7th, 1891. He was buried at Mountain Grove Cemetery in Bridgeport, Connecticut, which was a cemetery he designed. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to thank you for taking a tour of the museum, and please feel free to come back again anytime. And with that, we end today's show. If you're looking for us out there, you can find us on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, all your major podcast apps. And for the smartass, oh, don't feel free to join the Facebook group. And for the smartass historian, I am Scotty J. Catch you later, folks. <laughs>